Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And on this episode of Film Spotting SVU, we'll consider the relationship between camera and subject, documentary and the documented, podcaster and podcast listener, well, maybe not the last one, as we review Kirsten Johnson's Camera Person. Later in the episode, we'll bring you cue shots in which we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all with a common theme. In honor of Camera Person, I suggested we could talk about some other personal documentaries. Honestly, we've just both been at Sundance for a big chunk of the past two weeks. We are worn out. So instead, we're just going to talk about what we saw there. And fortunately, courtesy of Netflix dropping tens of millions of dollars <laughs> to acquire what felt like half of this year's lineup, some of those movies will be coming to streaming soon, very soon for one in particular. But first up, let's do opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies On Demand on cable, in which we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand. Matt, you're up this time. What have you got? Well, first up, I've got available on February 7th, the latest movie from Jeff Nichols, the director of Midnight Special, Shotgun Stories, and one of my favorites of the last decade, Take Shelter. It's called Loving, based on the true story of Richard and Mildred Loving. The name is just unbelievably it's if so you, good if it was fiction you would say it's too on the nose you have to change it but it is true they were an interracial couple persecuted because of their marriage and they challenged the laws that made their relationship illegal and eventually took the case all the way to the supreme court the movie is not really that much about the legal battles much more about their lives them their you know their day-to-day existence as people uh, they're played in the film by joel edgerton and ruth nega who got an oscar nomination for best actress for the film I have to admit it was not one of my favorite of Jeff Nichols' movies, but I think it's worth seeing for the performances, especially Ruth Negga's performance is, is quite beautiful. And, uh, you know, it's not the most visually dynamic movie, so I think it'll actually play pretty well at home if you're watching it on demand. So that is Loving. It'll be available on demand starting on February 7th. Next up, available on February 3rd, is the latest film from John Michael McDonough, that is the brother of Martin McDonough, the filmmaker who made In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. He's also a playwright. John Michael McDonough is a filmmaker in his own right. Uh, the movie I know of his the best is The Guard. He also made Calvary. Uh, this one is a dark buddy comedy, a cop comedy called War on Everyone. And it stars Alexander Skarsgård and Michael Pena. Here is the plot synopsis. Two corrupt cops set out to blackmail and frame every criminal unfortunate enough to cross their paths. Events, however, are complicated by the arrival of someone who appears to be even more dangerous than they are. So basically, they're the not nice guys. That's, I guess, the pitch. Sounds good. It sounds good to me. It's what? an interesting combination of actors, too. Skarsgård and Pena. It really is. Not they, someone I, I would like... instinctually put together. But when you look, when you, if you watch the trailer, you go, oh, they're kind of interesting. You know, kind of an oil and water. What you want buddy cops to be. Sort of, uh, you know, opposites attract kind of a thing. I'm into it. I'm very into it. It is War on Everyone. And you can check that out on February 3rd. Finally, available now on VOD is Ouija, Origin of Evil. The plot synopsis here is, it's a Ouija board. No. In 1967, Los Angeles, a widowed mother and her two daughters add a new stunt to bolster their seance scam business, inviting an evil presence into their home. I did not see the first Ouija movie, 
frankly, the idea of a, a Ouija ongoing horror series I find somewhat dubious, <laughs> but I've actually heard nothing but very good things about this movie, that it is scary, that it is a major improvement over the first movie, that the director, Mike Flanagan, who made Oculus and Hush, is a guy to watch. He's a smart guy. I'm, I'm pretty sure this actually made the list. I had uh, the great uh, writer Noel Murray do like the best horror movies of 2016 list on our uh, on Screen Crush on my website, and uh, he put it up there. He ranked it on the list. So I've been meaning to check this one out. I haven't seen it. I, like I said, I didn't even see the first Ouija. I don't think you need to, from I, what I've I'm, heard, I'm to guessing, follow along. Well, this is the origin of evil, so this is where it, or, it all originated. It all began. Start here, I guess. So that is Ouija, Origin of Evil, and that is available now on VOD. My theory is that Americans exist to the degree that they're being filmed or believe themselves to be filmed. <laughs> yeah, so this is the natural condition. Yeah, you see how Americanized I am now. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> On every episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit, we let you tell us what the focus of our main review should be by voting on one of three options over at our website, filmspottingsvu.com. And this time, those options were Aquarius, the 2016 Brazilian film starring Sonia Braga, that's now up on Netflix. Camera person, cinematographer turned director Kirsten Johnson's Oscar shortlisted but not nominated documentary, which is on Amazon Prime. And The Forest for the Trees, Tony Erdman filmmaker Marin Ada's directorial debut, which you can find on Tubi TV. There wasn't much of a competition. Camera person jumped into the lead and stayed there, ending up with over half the vote. Camera Person is Johnson's first solo turn as a director. She's mostly worked as a cinematographer for years on documentaries by the likes of Kirby Dick and Laura Poitras and Michael Moore, who actually appears in Camera Person in footage with a soldier who plans to refuse uh, to refuse to return to war. And the conversation kind of segues into one in which Moore is like, are you sure you're going to be OK? Are you going to go to jail? Do you need any help from us? Camera Person is comprised of footage that Johnson has shot while working on all of these docs over the years, jumping from Darfur to Brooklyn to Alabama to Bosnia to D.C. to Nigeria, with some moments in between in which she folds in home video footage of her twins and of her mother as she slowly deteriorates due to Alzheimer's. From the moment uh, over which the title is projected, in which this shot of lightning over a road is jostled by Johnson behind the camera sneezing... Camera person calls attention continually to the relationship between the camera and the subject, laying waste to the idea that, especially with a fly-on-the-wall approach preferred by some filmmakers, the camera is this invisible presence or an objective one. We see Johnson pluck stray weeds out of a frame to get a better shot. We see her audibly fret behind the camera, but not intervening while filming two kids playing with an axe. We hear her and the filmmaker she's with break into an anonymized interview with a woman getting an abortion to assure her that she is not, as she worries, a bad person. So, Matt, you are someone who has, over the many years that we've talked about movies, been one to present and to enjoy the read on a movie that it is actually about storytelling and or filmmaking. Camera Person is literally a film about filmmaking. Uh, it interrogates, in particular, the, the acts of and the responsibility that comes with documenting people at their most anguished and sometimes vulnerable. Uh, so what I want to know is, did it work for you making this theme so explicit? I think it does. I, I think this is a fascinating movie, like on an intellectual level. I'm not sure watching it that I really get a ton out of it emotionally. Certain scenes, yes. But overall, I think it's sort of more uh, an exercise for the mind and for – I think your your introduction almost renders the review to some extent obsolete because you really summed up, I thought, a lot of the things that are interesting about this movie, which is – just sort of seeing behind the scenes of the making of not one documentary, but all documentaries, essentially, you know, this survey of a wide swath made by this woman and just getting to see behind the curtain. And as you said, that, you know, certain filmmakers prefer a more, quote unquote, objective approach, you know, although Michael Moore is in the movie. I thought that was right. interesting because, you know, the, the, I think the movie is most valuable as sort of a 
I don't know, deconstruction of objectivity in documentaries or just sort of um, making explicit the idea that objectivity is maybe to some extent a myth, that there is always someone behind the camera, always someone controlling the camera, someone who is, you know, every shot, unless the person is a moron, is considered where the camera is put, what the camera is focused on, what's in front of the camera, all these little things that we, if a even or especially if a documentary is good and we get swept up in it, we don't necessarily think about that much. And it's sort of foregrounding all those things. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of interesting that Michael Moore appears in it because the movie seems so much about the sort of opposite approach from him where all of his movies are very clearly his authorship is his, right there. He's in. Yeah. And he's in on screen in a lot of the movie. He's talking. He's doing voiceover. This movie doesn't have voiceover, although you hear Kristen Johnson and others at times. But uh, yeah, I think that it's most interesting if you want to consider the documentary form and think about how it's made and why it's made and what the people who make it are thinking about. And I think it works. I don't mean this as an insult, like as a great advertisement for uh, Kirsten Johnson as like a filmmaker. Like to me, if I watched this documentary, I would go, I want this person to be my camera person on my next film because clearly – so intelligent and a beautiful eye for images and for framing and clearly has enough ideas that she can craft the essentially the refuse from other movies and turn them into something very thoughtful and beautiful. I I think it is a thoughtful and beautiful film. And I will say, I I think this, I find this more emotionally engaging than I think you do, Mm -hmm. particularly in, I think, the way it increases the tension, the the discomfort you feel as it goes along Mm -hmm. with the idea of the people on screen being filmed and what they're kind of surrendering by allowing themselves to be documented. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that in particular in uh, the movie starts with this shot or like very early on includes a shot of a guy who's about to box in Brooklyn. And he's like this young kid and he's getting psyched up and he's ready to go. And then later in the film, like towards the end, we get this shot, we return to that, and we see him after he's lost, and he's furious. He's so angry that he can't, like, it's almost, it's overwhelming him. And there, uh, it looks like he might at one point even lash out at her as she follows him. And he goes to talk to his mother, and his mother, like, embraces him. And she says, don't get mad, there's a lot of people watching. Mm. And I think... There is something about that where you understand that as the fil- as a filmmaker or as a camera person that she has gotten something great, but that also she has kind of taken something from him, you know, that in that this was not something he wanted to show. Right. And I feel like you are, that is I th- uh, such a fascinating and difficult tension because as a filmmaker and sometimes as a journalist, the thing that you want to get from your subject is not the thing they want to give you. Right. Like the best thing that you can get from them is something that they weren't that they were not like they had guarded or they'd hidden away that rawness, that kind of realness. And I think you in particular see that with the shots of her mother, you mm. know, and she has spoken about this in interviews. I had looked this up just because I was curious about how she is acutely aware of the fact that her mother would never have wanted to appear in a documentary like right, this. Right, right, right. But that in a way that she, her choices, she felt like it was more important and that her father was okay with it, but the other people in her family did not like the fact that she included those. But that last scene with her mother, which is the only time you see Kirsten Johnson on screen, mm-hmm. I think is heartbreaking. Like, it's made me cr- cry multiple times. Yeah, I mean, that's all fair. I think all those scenes you touch on are very powerful. Um, I just think, like, I, I guess for me, the things that I was connecting with more were these were these questions. Like, you know, that that one with the boxer, it's like, just the fact that the movie has the the guts or the willingness to sort of question itself and question the role that this filmmaker has in in documenting these things and just the like I said as a, as a great like ad, like a, as an ad to me it's like well I want the person who's really considering the impact that her filmmaking has that it's not you know just about capturing these images or that the the image is the only thing that's important that she's I think earlier in the film she talks about. You hear her off camera talking to someone, and I don't forget who, I don't even know if we know who, about, you know, I try to make a relationship with the people. I try to make eye contact so they understand that they're being filmed, like that that there is a responsibility, right? The Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. In a way, that is one of the themes of this movie. And so I definitely 
absolutely respect that about this movie. And I think it's sort of beautiful the way that it shows even where we don't actually see her on screen almost at all, the way that we see her dealing with that responsibility and those issues in several ways, like the scene, which has already, I think it's probably the most famous scene in the movie with the kids with the ax where these little kids, I think it's in Bosnia, maybe yeah, it's in Bosnia. are playing with an ax seemingly unsupervised. And she's sitting there filming it and you hear her kind of murmuring, distress, oh, yeah. geez, oh, geez, <laughs> you know, like, and, and she's kind of, the camera is almost twitchy. It's zooming in, it's zooming out. And you can feel her anxiety about, well, do I intercede here? Do I get this great moment of realism or do I go in there and grab this axe away from these little kids? I mean, one of the kids is very little and doesn't even understand the concept of an axe, I don't think, you know, and is like giggling with glee at the sight of this very dangerous object. And you feel the same tension that she's feeling. And I, I think throughout the movie, the fact that you, even though we don't see Kirsten Johnson, we hear her, is such a beautiful kind of metaphor for the idea that we're expressing here, that even when we don't see the director or the filmmaker, whoever it is on screen, there is someone here. There is a presence. There is decisions. Every shot, every scene, everything we see, someone decided to shoot it or to not stop it and to then to include it, too, in the editing process as well. Right. And I think what's nice about this film beyond the kind of intellectual exercises that it includes are that it finds room for these moments of grace. Um, like in particular, the interview she does with the older Bosnian woman mm. uh, where she's trying to basically get her to talk about whether they, this family who's returned to, they're like, I think the only like Bosnian Muslims who have like returned, returned home to this area yeah, uh, that like, there were kind of terrible, like mass rapes and like uh, they, she's trying to get her to say whether they've had trouble. And the woman keeps being like, no, everything's fine. You only get trouble when you ask for it, basically. And they think she's, protect, you know, be, be, like kind of smoothing things over. And then Kirsten Dunstan's like, can you ask her if she's always dressed so stylishly? And she, she's like, yes, and talks about it. And the way in which she kind of like just sparks to life under this question that is just a kind of re human, regular old human question is so wonderful you know i think those touches like the moment where she uh captures the the soldier cuts uh watermelon for her i can't mm -hmm. even remember where she is at that point uh. uh and then and has to leave it and leaves you know, offers yes. her the watermelon i think like these bits where you're like it's not for all that it asks this movie asks you to consider very difficult questions about documenting it is also filled with like the joy of just these bits of life that yeah. you can meeting encompass. people yeah the way that it's given her this access to people she right. never otherwise would have met but and also i think it it makes this quiet case for the value of of documenting i mean in the end when she's like the the bosnian family is one that's returned to several times throughout the film when she goes back after five years and is like the things i remembered were all of these like blueberries and flowers and this wonderful thing. And she's like, this movie was actually about like horrible atrocities right. and that your memory is imperfect in a way mm -hmm. that the camera for all that it is also a tool of uh, subjectivity uh, is not right. But it also, the, but that also, again, it depends on what you include. If you, you could make a movie perhaps that didn't include the horrors and was just about the blueberries. It's mm -hmm. all about, um, what you focus on. And the thing that I thought was interesting about what you were just saying there was how earlier you said, you know, that sometimes the role of the journalist is to get them to say the thing they don't want to say. And that example you gave about the fashion sort of was the opposite. It's like, this is what happens when you ask the person they've always wanted to be asked. And you see that the beautiful, you know, like the pleasant surprise. But it's also, it's getting under it's getting the truth of them, right? right. Like yeah. a try and attempt to get at the truth of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't I, I do think I think this this documentary has such richness to it in just the ways in which it unfolds these many questions mm -hmm. and very rarely explicitly like throws them at you. Yes, for sure. This will be I would I would expect maybe the most watched documentary in documentary schools. I mean, potentially moving forward, it could be the most watched documentary. Don't you think every like documentary 101 class from now until the end of time is going to screen this movie? I would hope so. Yeah, I, I was like going to say, I think they should. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that it, it, especially like I've seen 
I've seen multiple documentaries over the years about war photographers in particular, mm-hmm. in which the question of like, what is your responsibility? And also what is the value of these, these like sometimes terrible images that you're bringing back mm-hmm. is like been a central question. And I feel like this film reminds me of that, even whether it is in a war scenario or not, that it kind of engages with those same things and maybe even broadens them a bit into mm. larger questions. And mm. I, that's something I really appreciate. Is there a favorite as we wrap it up here? Is there a single favorite? Because it's all just little snippets. Is there a single favorite? You've already mentioned a few you really liked. But... I think it's just that last scene with her mom. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, especially in the context of everything that's come before, I think it's just so beautiful. I That's a great one. But I actually love – watching it again this week, I really loved the title card and the scene with, with her – you know, like The with sneeze. The sneeze that it's it, – she's filming – I don't even know what it's for, but she's filming sort of this expanse with a very dark sky in the background. And then there's this huge bolt of lightning, like a p- perfect bolt of lightning, and you hear her gasp. And then there's the thunder, this huge boom of thunder. And then – a film by Kirsten Johnson comes up, which is very sort of like, da-da, very tongue-in-cheek, which the movie isn't always super funny, but that is, is really kind of very charming. And then she sneezes, and you wonder, how long was she holding that sneeze? And, and all those sort of, you know, so it, it kind of wraps everything up into this one thing, a beautiful image, um, kind of how so much of documentary is about just being in the right place at the right time, how much of it is luck, that there is skill, but it's also luck. And then just, again, those like sort of moments of grace that you were talking about and that there is always someone back there filming the camera and sometimes they really have to sneeze, I think is all, like to me like that. It's, it's a very short clip. It's, it's not as emotional as some of the others, but it's sort of it's almost like a perfect short film unto itself, which I really admired as well. All right. Well, enthusiastic thumbs up uh, for Camera Person, which is on Amazon Prime. We are here back in New York City. We have returned from the Sundance Film Festival. We were both there for about a week. It was my first trip in like five, six years. Allison, you've been going just about every year for a long time. I've I've had some breaks in there, but I've been the last three years. Right. And for me, like for me, it was a longer break. So I guess let's we're going to talk about a few movies that we both saw and then throw in a couple of recommendations that one or the other of us liked, but the other person missed. But before we get to that, very briefly, I'm just curious because it was my first time in a while. Did you think this was a good Sundance? How did it compare to some of the previous years you've been there. I saw some I saw some movies that I really liked. Mm-hmm. I only saw one that I just was over the moon about. Okay. And I did feel that it was a very weird Sundance sure. that the presidential inauguration happened right in the first weekend, right. which was an odd thing to have hanging over. But I think also it was a weird Sundance in that you could feel this noticeable shift in terms of who had the most power there uh, in terms of acquisitions. By you which know. you're referring to, like, the streaming services. The streaming services. Like, I talked to uh, an executive from a smaller distributor, like, at the... A baggage, theatrical distributor? Yes, yes, at the baggage carousel of... In Park when City I was coming or Salt home. Lake City. Yeah. yeah. And, and this person was like, we picked up one thing. And normally when we came here before, we'd pick up three to four things. Wow. But, like, you have... Netflix buying things like spending eight million dollars on To the Bone, which I didn't see, but mm-hmm. which most people seem to like. It's like a Lily Collins in the semi-personal anorexia drama from Marty Knoxon, right, right, right. who was a TV person, you know, who worked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and things like that. It's her directorial debut. By all accounts, like a kind of funny, very but Sundancey movie about like with dark humor, but also awe. Everyone gets a hug in the end. Yeah. 
uh, eight million dollars for that. Like right. that is the kind of number that used to be like would be record, close to close record, to record breaking. Record breaking, and that was just tossed out there. Right, for, and, like, and that was by no means the only thing Netflix picked up. No, certainly not. So I think there is a, a kind of real feel of change in the air, just in terms of for a lot of these movies, and I don't think actually. I mean, as much as I love the theatrical experience, I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, given the size and the scope of a lot of these movies. Sure, that's they are a good going point. to go straight to Netflix. to Netflix. And I don't. I mean, for some of those movies, like uh, Jessica Williams's romantic comedy, uh, The Amazing Jessica James. Yeah, it's a really sweet small movie. Mm-hmm. It will do much better on Netflix and perform much better and make much more sense on Netflix than it would if you had to pay fifteen dollars to see it in a theater. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that aspect of it. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, a lot of the movies I saw, even some of the good ones, don't have a ton of visual ambition where you go, this is an experience that needs to be seen on the biggest possible screen. I mean, I think by their very nature, a lot of these indie movies are less concerned with that side of things and more concerned about characters and drama and performance and all those sorts of things because they just don't have the time or the money or the experience or the whatever it is to give you that incredible visual big screen experience. So it will be interesting to see. I mean, who knows? The other thing is, like, this could also change again. Like, if the uh, giant streaming services go, why are we spending $8 million on yeah. these little movies that aren't getting the same number of uh, views as a television show that we pick up or or that we spend our own money on? Maybe in a year or two, they might completely abandon that yeah, uh, like, Sundance. Who knows? Who knows? Like, what's going on and what the future holds yeah, for many reasons. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting thing to to think about. All right. Well, you did mention that there was one movie that you flat out loved sort of above all others. And I, I know what this is. And I had the same reaction to it. We had the same favorite movie at Sundance. You want to tell people what it was? Sure. It is a ghost story uh, directed by David Lowry, reuniting Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara, who were the stars from his movie, Ain't Them Bodies Saints. Uh, and this is a movie with distribution. It'll be distributed by A24. So eventually, I don't think there's a date yet, but it'll be coming out. And it's one of those movies, and I don't say this often, but it is one of those movies where, in a way, the best possible way to experience it is to Spoiler let it free. Be, yeah, to let it be a surprise, just because it's so enchantingly weird. It and is weird. touching. Yeah. But the basics are that Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara are a couple. And they're living in this little house and he dies in a car accident Mm -hmm. and she is grieving him. And meanwhile, he returns as a ghost. Right. And he returns as a ghost in the most childlike sense. Like he is the most stereotypical ghost image. The sheet, the black, big black circles of of the movie by by Casey Affleck or another actor standing in. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure how much Affleck actually played that. Oh, did we find David Lowry answered this question in the screening that I was at. Okay. He said that mine. He said that for a lot of it, they shot with Affleck in the oh, sheet, okay. but then they ended didn't end up using a lot of that because it actually looked better to have someone less who walked in a less distinctive way. Or sometimes they would have no one under the sheet at all, they said. Yeah, he talked a little properly. bit at hours that it was actually, it, you know, in the movie, it just looks like this big, giant, billowy sheet that's kind of floating through this house. But that actually is a very complicated puppet, essentially, yeah. to get the right expression in the eyes and the face. And even though there's no features that and the way that the the fabric moved and everything that it was a very surprisingly complicated gadget and the way he described it and talked about it i just sort of assumed that it wasn't casey affleck underneath it most of the they time they tried for a while with, with it's just like a very funny image to think of casey affleck <laughs> yes. under this sheet yeah but yeah i don't uh, know how much else to say about this movie than that right it's yeah it's not one you want to say the only thing i would say is to people which i and this is what i was saying to people when they were asking me about it at the festival was to stick with it, to not give up and not to sort of bail out intellectually because it's going to ch- – especially the first like half hour is really going to challenge you. There are some very long takes in this movie. Um, there's a scene that is already sort of famous if you've read it all about it. No, no review did not mention it. Yeah. Um, involving Rooney Mara. It's actually a series of two shots back to back eating this pie, basically like stress eating or grief eating a pie after Casey Affleck has died. And these shots go on a very long time. And I could feel in the room and from myself going, wow, this is a very long time to watch Rooney Mara eat pie. (laughs) But having said all that, when the movie is over, uh, I was sort of not only just in love with the whole film, it retroactively you go okay those scenes with the pie 
are important, actually, and they make sense within the overall framework of what David Lowry is doing. And I, I also want to say, you know, David Lowry's a filmmaker I respect a lot. I haven't really loved a lot of his movies. I wasn't a huge Ain't Them Body Saints fan. A beautiful Same. movie, a gorgeous movie to watch, but it didn't really connect with me, uh, sort of like Camera Prison. Like, it didn't really connect with me emotionally in the way that this movie did. This movie I found very profound. Like, it was... It's kind of devastating, and it's intellectual as well. It's very smart, and it really makes you think, but you will be blown away by how much you sort of connect with this freaking sheet floating yeah. through this house and how sad you feel for it. And for sort of all of humanity, it's uh, it's definitely a <laughs> universal story, which is, I think, part of the brilliance of making Casey Affleck into a, a sheet yeah. is that we are watching – it's you know that sort of universality of this spirit that it really makes you think about – your own life, your own mortality in a way that is very, very powerful. Yeah, I don't, it's funny in that like these movies resemble each other very little, but the thing that it made me think of or just like, I kind of like wanted to group this movie with in my mind was like Don Hertzfeld a bit. Mm. Like it's such a beautiful day. I could see that. It's slightly, it's a little absurdist as well. It's slightly less comedic, but it has this combination of like the intimate and the absurd and then the whole universe right and this giant question of human existence and and you're you're being tiny blips in the universe yes it absolutely does that's a good comparison i did not think of but i absolutely see it and you're right that the sort of the individual versus the totality of existence um and never losing the individual you know or individuals in this case it's pretty it's pretty special and that is one that I'm glad that someone bought for theatrical distribution because it is one that I do not think would play well on Agreed, streaming yeah. especially in those long takes people would be checking their phones they'd be bailing out it's definitely one to go see in the theater all right well that well I'm glad we agreed on that much because that one yeah not was, everyone loved lo- it that I, I spoke to it. but yeah I did too definitely f- my absolute favorite movie at Sunday so that's a ghost story it does have distribution we don't know when exactly it's coming at this point, but definitely put that on your radar. Okay, what should we talk about next? Well, I just wanted to mention one of the other more talked about. There were, I would say, like three very talked about movies at the festival. Okay. Uh, Ghost Story is one of them. Yep. The second one I would say is Mudbound. Okay, this one I did not see. This one you did not see. This is from Dee Rees, who directed Pariah, which is like a a kind of breakout film from, I think, 2011. And then she went on to direct Bessie for HBO. So this is her second theatrical film. Uh, It's about racism and this white family and a black family on the same farm in Mississippi in the 1940s. And is this really, it's a true ensemble film. You've got Carrie Mulligan, Mary J. Blige, Jason Clark, Jason Mitchell from Straight Outta Compton, and a much more interesting than usual Garrett Hedlund, who I often find a very handsome blur of a, of a actor. And the thing that I think this movie does so well and does very early on is it shifts perspective from character to character mm-hmm. in this like vaguely Faulkner way. So they people different characters get different voiceovers. And it makes it it, it kind of makes it as an exploration of racism and an exploration of characters who who mean well and don't understand maybe like the power or don't like are oblivious to the privilege and the power that they have um because of their their whiteness in Mississippi at this time. It's it's really deftly done. Weirdly, this movie, despite getting a lot of acclaim, has yet to settle on a distributor hmm. as of, I mean, Sundance is over and I don't think it has officially sold yet. Hmm. I know people are bidding on it, but I feel like in this weird way, Birth of a Nation is like casting the shadow over it just because uh. distributors are like scared of how Because that movie did not do well. It did not do well. And, fortune for right, it. Right. That like somehow totally unfairly when you're like you have another kind of like very prestige movie from a black filmmaker that they're almost like it's so it was like they're scared to how to do the oscar campaign but i don't i don't think that d reese is going to end up in the same situation as nate parker i don't think uh it's merited in any way but i do have to wonder if that is part of the reason it hasn't sold yet is Mm. that everyone's jumpy Mm. because of 
Fox Searchlight spending $17.5 million on right. Birth of a Nation and last year. That was probably not the best, ultimately. It was not a great investment for no, them. No, it was not. That's interesting. Well, we were before we talk about another one we've both seen, This is that actually isn't a good segue for something that I could throw out here. You mentioned one of the actors, was it Jason Mitchell? Yes. Who was in Straight Outta Compton. Was he good in uh, in Mudbound? He was good. Well, that okay, perfect. So another actor from Straight Outta Compton, O'Shea Jackson Jr., who played Ice Cube. He's Ice Cube's son. He played him in the movie. Which I, th- I thought that movie was fine. You know, it was good. Uh, but, you know, he's playing his father. So you go, well, that doesn't necessarily require... And he looks just like his father. So exactly he like might him. not be a great actor. He might just look a lot like his dad and know his dad very well. Well, let me tell you something. This guy's an actor. He's great in uh, a movie that I saw called Ingrid Goes West. Which is... He's a supporting player in the film. But he kind of steals the movie uh, to a certain ex- uh, extent. Uh, very briefly, it is a... It's sort of the... You know, the Instagram version of, like, single white female or Chuck and Buck, you know, Chuck and Buck 2.0 or something like that. It's a, it's like a stalker movie. Aubrey Plaza plays Ingrid, this woman who is clearly emotionally troubled. She is fixated on social media. She's introduced, like, looking at her phone and obsessing over these pictures of a wedding, then storming into the wedding and macing the bride. Which awesome. is sort of an interesting way to introduce a character. Um, but then after she spends the opening credits in sort of like a mental hospital, she then becomes fixated with this Instagram celebrity who's played by Elizabeth Olsen, who I thought maybe was channeling her sisters a little bit. I don't know. Ooh. I thought that was sort of an interesting part of it. Um, but anyway, she becomes obsessed with her and decides to move to Los Angeles with the money that her recently dead mother left her like she left her an inheritance of like 50 grand or something like that she takes it all in cash and heads to la to find this woman that she's obsessed with and sort of transform herself into her by stalking because on instagram Mm. it's very easy to follow someone if they are here's where i'm eating here's where i'm shopping here's where i live you know like all these little things so she sort of makes herself over into her into like her and then kind of I won't tell you how, but inserts herself into her life. And you're wondering, will they sort of uncover what she's doing and stuff? And O'Shea Jackson Jr. plays her landlord um, and eventual love interest-ish. And also he is an aspiring screenwriter who loves Batman. And so there's a lot of jokes in the movie about how like – she uh, about how he wants to be Batman. He's writing a script. He's like writing a reboot of Batman Returns and – it's really his stuff is really funny and he's very charming and likable and he's great with Aubrey Plaza. And so he's a great surprise and was one of those performances that I saw at Sundance where I was like, oh, this is one of those quote unquote breakout performances. He's great. And uh, the movie overall is really good. I, I, you know, I had some problems with certain things about it, including the ending. But another one that I liked, I do believe someone acquired that one. Um, I think Neon, which is I think the new Tim League, uh, yeah, the Alamo Draft yeah. House's new sort of uh, distribution company, they're uh, getting up and running. So that one you'll be able to see. It's called Ingrid Goes West. Okay, so how about one that we've both seen and I know we both liked? Okay, uh, The Big Sick. Oh yeah, really yes. like The Big Sick. Uh, directed by Michael Showalter, produced by Judd Apatow, and written co-written by and starring Kumail Nanjiani. Uh, he wrote the screenplay with his wife, Emily Gordon, who was played in the movie by Zoe Kazan. And it is basically their story. It's a story about how they met, started dating, broke up, and then had this giant unexpected illness come into Emily's life. And that kind of shakes up their relationship a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and it is extremely charming. It Very is, charming. Uh, sweet and sad. It is, like a lot of Jed Apatow movies, a little too long. Yep. Like maybe could do with one more edit. 10 minutes shorter. 15. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But Kumail Nanjiani is like, I think a really good lead actor. Very good. You know, he's great with Zoe Kazan. They're very good together. They have incredible like chemistry. They're, they're really, you know, they're really convincing together. They are. And what I really loved about this movie is that it is as much about how dating someone is effectively like dating their family. Like Mm -hmm. parents are so important in this movie and there are two sets of parents and they play as major a role. In fact, I think they get like as much screen time as Zoe Kazan does in this. Well, she gets sick and, and sort of gets, is in a medically induced coma. coma. 
Roma. And so for a while, the movie becomes Kumail and her parents, who are yeah. Ray Romano and Holly Hunter, who are both spectacular They're in the so movie. Good. Yeah. Definitely a movie I could see having some, you know, Oscar discussions for both of them right. by the and, end of the year. And then it also spends a lot of time dealing with his relationship with his parents. Yes. And they're kind of, they're, they want it so badly for him to marry a Pakistani Muslim girl. Right. And he does not want that, but is also does not want to disappoint them. Yes. And so he's been coasting forever in allowing them to set right. him up with these different girls. Right. Who he has no interest in dating, yeah. but because he loves his parents, he doesn't want to make waves. He just kind of goes along. He goes with the flow. Yeah. It's, uh, it is like a very kind of touching and very sometimes sharp edged uh, immigrant story about yes. dealing with your parents' expectations and Absolutely. about the idea that you could, I mean, like the stakes are very real that he could lose his relationship with his parents right. by choosing. He might get not disowned, to, basically, yeah, by choosing to date someone who is not what they want. Yeah. So it's uh, it's very. There's a lot going on in it for like what looks. I would say in its broad outlines, like a Judd Apatow movie about right. a struggling comedian. Yeah. I mean, the only other thing I would add was ju- is just that what I felt watching it was that it is a romantic comedy. Now, granted, as you said, there's a while where it almost becomes a romantic comedy about a guy and his it, girlfriend's parents. Yes. But it is a romantic comedy. And just how in every romantic comedy, the rule is the people are perfect for one another. And, and they invent some BS reason why they can't be together. And you're just sitting there going, ugh. Yeah, when, when will they get uh, over when this? Will they when get will over they have this? a conversation? Right. Yeah. yeah, someone walks in on someone and their ex is kissing them and it's, it's not what it looks like. You know, and then the person storms out. And, you know, it's always just completely BS things like that. And here is a movie where you have two very real reasons why a couple, an obstacle to a couple being together. The illness and also the fact that they're from these different backgrounds and one set of parents are, you know, dead set against it. And I just thought it was so refreshing to see this, you know, a love story, a romantic comedy that felt real, that felt authentic. Had real stakes. Real to stakes, it. real yeah. people having real conversations. You know, I just thought that um, Kumail Nanjani and Emily Gordon, they really poured their, like, their hearts out, their lives out into this movie. And I just found that very, very refreshing. It is a little too long. It's about 10 minutes too long. But I, you know, like, I completely was just like, I don't, I don't even yeah. care because I was just enjoying spending time with all of these characters that even though while conceding it's a little too long, I don't even know what I would cut because even some of the scenes that are superfluous were some of my favorites. They were really enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. like there's a scene with his brother, with Kumail's brother. His brother, brother is great. His brother fabulous. is uh, this British actor who's on Four Lions. Yeah, he was in Four Lions. so funny. And they and have this great. scene where they talk, they're at like a batting cage and they're talking and you could probably just cut that scene right out of but the movie. I love that but scene. it's an incredible scene and it's so real <laughs> and funny and smart. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, another another big recommendation for the big sick. Amazon bought that right, one. For Twelve million dollars. Right, and Amazon does usually put things in theaters first. Oh, I think it will go in theaters. So yeah. this one will probably come to theaters before it shows up on Amazon Prime. But that's oh, eventually, if you're patient, that's where you're going to find it. All right, let's run through a few more really quickly. Yep. Uh, one of the other three, I would say, big three most talked about movies at the festival. Call Me by Your Name, Luca Guadagnino's uh, new film, who did the I Am Love, I Am Love, Bigger Splash, Bigger Splash. Uh, this new one is a a queer romance starring Army Hammer and Timothy Chalamet. Is it Chalamet or Chalamet? Do we know? I don't know, but let's I don't go thi- with Chalamet. It sounds now. better that How way to that? me. It's it's a Frenchish name. He speaks French in the movie sometimes. Uh, also, Michael Stuhlbarg and Amira Kazar are in this, and uh, Michael Stuhlbarg in particular gets one of the greatest moments in this movie. Yeah, that's what uh, I've heard. Yeah. I haven't seen this one, but I, uh, other than I would say. Uh, the Big Sick. This was the movie that I think was the most universally acclaimed of any movie at the festival. Yeah, and I like it a lot. I do. It is a lot tamer than Guadagnino's other previous movies, which mm-hmm. if you've seen them, they feel almost like they're trying to recreate the feeling of being on ecstasy. Like they're so sensual and like so kind of amped up. This is still plenty sensual, but it is uh, a little more straightforward. But it is tender and bittersweet and beautiful and it's got some great performances in there uh, i'm I, i'm excited to see it again uh and a few more really quickly i don't feel at home in this world anymore which just won the, i think the jury prize um this is the directorial debut of macon blair who you may remember from his work with uh in Blue Ruin in particular mm-hmm. as a star of that melanie linsky and elijah wood in this Almost it's difficult to, to describe, but it is kind of like an amateur sleuth story in which she tries to figure out who broke into her house. But it is also sort of a story about depression, and it is also sort of a story about loneliness, and it becomes a brutal, like very gory action movie at the end. Uh, that 
is actually coming to Netflix on February 24th. So maybe that's like something we can put up as a potential review. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's a good time. And one more from me. I wanted to give a shout out to Whose Streets. Uh, I didn't get to see a ton of docs at the festival, but this one, which is about Ferguson, directed by... uh, Saba Faloyan uh, is her first film, and she's, I think, an activist and an artist. It it starts off with the familiar and builds to some really spectacular, like intense footage, and it, it doesn't just run you through what you th- the beats of kind of Ferguson that were on the ma- like in the media. Mm. It really shows you the building of this movement from within and how people get transformed from being on the periphery to becoming the center of this movement. Uh, It's pretty wonderful. Uh, I'll just throw out a a quick plug for the best documentary I saw at the festival, which was called Step. And that one, I think, was picked up by Fox Searchlight. So this one you will also get a chance to see. Very um, heartwarming film. I joked to someone after I saw it that clearly it was shown in a theater. They need to dust these theaters better before they show these movies because I was pretty much getting choked up through the entire movie. It's about a charter school in Baltimore where um, these young women, it's a charter school specifically for young women, and if there are white students at the school, we don't really see them in the film. It's predominantly African American and they have this step team which I know nothing about uh, but loved sort of learning about and specifically we follow basically three main young women, three students at the school, through their senior year, they're they're prepping and, and learning and, and practicing for the big competition, of course. It is sort of a sports movie. But almost much more importantly, they're all trying to get into college. And it is about sort of the opportunities that they have or don't have. It is about um, the school and the kind of importance of good educators and the lives of people and what a positive impact a an educator can make in the life of a young person when they care and they don't quit and they, you know, really push someone to be their best. As the uh, husband of an educator, I found that a very inspiring message. And um, uh, the director got they, she, she got a little bit lucky in terms of there are some things in the story that you can't really control, just twists and turns of real life that are very they they're very fortunate for a filmmaker making this kind of movie. But she was there to capture it all. It is a kind of a it's a heartwarming movie, but it's also not you know it's not uh, sugarcoated either. There's some there's some dark moments. It doesn't shy away from you know the the hard things in these young women's lives, the issues they face, the troubles they have, and so I, I, uh, that to me was sort of the the feel good. Um, but also educational documentary that I really admired that I saw. Sort of surprised. I thought for sure it'd be like a, an audience award winner. It doesn't look like it was. I'm sort of surprised by that, that it didn't pick up. Uh, it, it did get a special jury award for inspirational filmmaking. So I, I think that's uh, very well put. It's very inspirational for sure. So that's Step. Should we do one last movie that we had both seen we were talking about? Uh, Landline? Sure. And this was one that I was most looking forward to and I found disappointing and mm. that you liked. I liked a little bit better. Yeah, it's, it wasn't a slam dunk for me, but uh, it, I, I thought it was worth watching. You, you, don't, you wouldn't recommend it at all? No, but this oh. is a – I kind of broke my heart, honestly. Oh. But like, it was from uh, Gillian Robespierre, who are – Gillian. Gillian, as me. they – yes, yes, they made that. Gillian Robespierre. I never knew that either, but they made uh, a big point of that yeah. before the screening. Right, who did Obvious Child, yes. which I loved. Okay. And uh, this was her follow-up with Jenny Slate back in a central role. And it's sort of a story about a family. Dysfunctional family Dysfunctional ensemble. Family. There's like two instances of infidelity going mm-hmm. on. Uh, it's also sort of a, it's set in the 90s and it's filled with 90s details some 90s references it's yeah. not overboard but there are some mm, you felt that. they were a little overboard the, the they 90s, don't add much no they don't right the 90s references are kind of more of a backdrop than they are they're they have much bearing kind of cheap actual. jokes occasionally yeah there's not a lot of reasons this had to be set in the 90s you could have you could probably make a cut of this and other than a couple of outfits that are very 90s, you probably would not notice that it's not set in 2017. There's, you know, you could probably get away with it. The way I felt about this was that it, uh, you know, I think I, I liked Obvious Child too, maybe not as much as you did, but I did feel like this was a filmmaker who maybe wanted to do something different than Obvious Child while also satisfying the people who loved Obvious Child or were maybe expecting her second movie to resemble it because to me it felt like she wanted to make a more serious movie, a less jokey movie. And by the end of the movie, 
the movie kind of gets there to me. It becomes much less about Jenny Slate being goofy and quirky set pieces and much more about, you know, parents having these very frank discussions about their relationship. Edie Falco and John Turturro are in it, and I thought they were both really good in the movie. I think to some extent the movie was hurt by – I think it played like right before The Big Sick, and uh, that's a better movie about somewhat similar things. Um, so it, it just it – didn't, it didn't compare well with that. But I did feel like while – as it started, I thought it was – I thought it was a little a little weak, a little bit of a step back from Obvious Child, but I also felt by the end of it that it had achieved something worthwhile where I really began to get more engrossed with the characters, with the conflicts. When it stopped trying to be kind of tonally like Obvious Child and to put down the, the that sort of humor and sort of embrace what – to me, it, it felt like the movie wanted to be, which was more of a dramatic film, more of a – a melodrama about uh, a very troubled family with all of these issues. Yeah, I just felt like it was telling two stories that are like almost like Sundance tropes at this point. The like, I'm not sure if I want to be in the serious relationship, so I'm going to start this ill-advised affair. Yeah. And the, uh-oh, mom and dad are breaking up. Uh, and I just, I, I wanted more from it than that. I felt like there were a lot of kind of like random threads that never went anywhere. And yeah, I wanted so badly for this to be something that I liked and it was not. Sadly. I, I did like, did you like Abby Quinn who plays As the young, a younger sister? Yeah, I did, but I, I thought, felt like her, her whole story arc was like kind of half there. Yeah. And I, and I, I thought that she maybe like should have been the main character. Since, I had that thought too. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of. It would make more sense to me as a movie if she were the main character and the point where the lessons she learned from these two things going on in her, her family's life. You may be right. You may be right. Okay, well, let's move on to Behind the Eight Ball in which we give you three releases that are new to streaming, two that are recommended to us by you guys, our listeners, and one item chosen blindly by the other person from our Netflix My Lists. And Matt, you are going to go first this time. Okay. Well, then give me three new releases. All right. First up, how about a documentary on the magazine and later the comedy brand responsible for films like Animal House and Vacation? And later than that, the brand responsible for other remarkable masterpieces like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation 2, Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure, (laughs) and National Lampoon's Barely Legal. It is Drunk Stoned, Brilliant Dead, the story of National Lampoon, which is available on Netflix. If this is a subject you're interested in, on the story of the National Lampoon, the magazine, and later this sort of force in entertainment and film in particular, I think it's a very solid documentary. It has good interviews with most of the people you would want to hear from in this film, and it has also really cool animation that... Um, one of the hallmarks of the magazine, the National Lampoon, was great artwork and illustrations and stuff. And the movie does a nice job of kind of incorporating that through different animation. So that's Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant, Dead, the story of the National Lampoon on Netflix. Next up on Hulu, one of the great Coen Brothers movies, Fargo, which I looked. I was surprised to see we have never recommended it on this show, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frances McDormand plays a small town Minnesota sheriff. She's investigating several murders tied to a fast-talking car salesman played by William H. Macy, also with Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare. We could easily do a whole podcast just about this movie as a listener's choice. Maybe we should do that sometime. Or we could do a whole podcast just on the mic Yanagita scene. Oh, absolutely. Wouldn't that I be fun? I talk about it for like three hours. That would be kind of fun. Maybe we should do that. Maybe we should do a, a, a listener choice options where instead of we talking about a whole movie, we just talk about one scene. <laughs> not, bad, not a bad idea. No, that we should do that sometime. Anyway, in the meantime, that is Fargo, which is available on Hulu. And finally, I have a recommendation that I got from the Film Spotting SVU Twitter account. What a useful Twitter account it is. It is great. At Film Spotting SVU. It is a, it, the title from Amazon Prime is Lost Edward Pilot colon Final Curtain. Uh, this is the cult film director Ed Wood's Final Curtain. It was a television pilot for a proposed series called Portraits of Terror. In this episode, a disturbed actor recounts the strange happenings in what appears to be a haunted theater. The pilot, filled with many familiar Edward touches, was thought to be lost until turning up at the 2012 Slam Dance Film Festival. And Allison spotted this one, recommended it on the Twitter account, uh, I guess, this week. I hadn't heard about it. I had never seen it, but I am fascinated to see it. So uh, I, I can't wait to check this one out and see if it, uh, it does hold, as they, as they described it there, some familiar Edward touches. I love an Edward touch. That sounded weird. But that is the Lost Edward Pilot Final Curtain on Amazon Prime. 
All right. How about two listener recommendations? All right. Our first comes from Bethany in Mount Vernon, Washington. She says, hey, Matt and Allison, I would like to recommend the CW's new show, No Tomorrow. The first and possibly only season has just gone up on Netflix, and I do wish more people would give it a try. A young, charming girl meets a young, charming guy who is convinced the world is ending in eight months and as a result convinces everyone around him to make the most of the time they have. While there is a lot of cheesiness in this premise, the cast does a great job at selling a lot of optimism and sweetness without mocking it or making it seem dumb. I appreciate particularly the character of Edie, the lead female, who is very wide-eyed and sweet, but never seems to be an object of pity or scorn. I think there is something to be said for that in a landscape of a lot of cynicism. Thank you so much for your show. I really love your work. That was from Bethany in Mount Vernon, Washington, and the recommendation again was No Tomorrow on Netflix. Next up, we have one from Leslie Lewis. Leslie writes, yep, me again. Amazon Prime is now streaming the first season of The Expanse, which originally aired on the Sci-Fi Channel. As a fan of the six novels in the series, I was not sure how well TV would handle this intricate space opera. Although it does not strictly follow the books, it has done a satisfying job of translating the plot and characters into ten very fine and binge-worthy episodes. The sets, costumes, and visual effects are another plus I might actually pay to get season two ASAP. Finally, thanks to Matt and Allison for having adult dialogue and discussions about films. In this world of yelling trolls, it is nice to hear two bright animated humans talk to one another with grace. And that is from Leslie Lewis. Thank you, Leslie. And that might be the ultimate compliment you can pay a a television show in this era. I I liked it so much, (laughs) I might pay to see the rest of it early. It is. That probably is the ultimate sign of an endorsement because you can almost always wait to see it somewhere on a service you're already paying for. Unless you can't wait. Unless you can't. Right, exactly. If it's so good, you can't wait. So thank you, Leslie. Also, you should know, we just yell at each other all the time when we're not recording. I said, shut up! Don't talk about that on (laughs) Kevin! All right, how about one from your My List? You gave me number two, and number two right now is uh, for it's. I'm so glad it's not an embarrassing choice. So often the ones you give me lately have been really embarrassing. <laughs> this one I'm not embarrassed about. It's El Dorado, the Howard Hawks film. It reunites him with Rio Bravo star John Wayne in a classic Western about a hired gun who teams with a sheriff to thwart greedy ranchers. It's from 1966. It also stars Robert Mitchum and James Caan. And I, I, recently I was looking to see what classic movies Netflix has. Spoiler alert, they don't have a lot of classic movies. Yeah, they're not, are very, they're not very invested that's, in it these That's days. not really what they're focusing on. But this one was on there, and I've never seen El Dorado. And so I added it to my, my list. Allison, are you ready to count your movies down? I'm so ready. All right, let's do three new releases. Okay, first up, new and exclusive to Shudder is Sadako versus Kayako. Oh, boy. I just watched this. It did not disappoint. Um, just as the long-delayed and largely unasked for The Ring sequel, Rings, is finally coming out. This Freddy versus Jason style matchup between the ghost from the ring and the ghost from the grudge movies hits streaming. It's a Japanese production. It is extremely fun. It like the buildup uh, is all you want. And uh, the final battle is great. Um, Sadako versus Kayako. That is on Shudder. Streaming on Amazon Prime is Me Without You. This is a 2001 film starring Anna Friel and Michelle Williams, who was still in the middle of her Dawson's Creek run at the time. And it gives a glimpse of the film career she'd go on to have. It's this film about a very close but increasingly toxic friendship between these two girls over the years as they get older. And I think that's always a topic that I find interesting because I think that I, uh, most women have uh, in their lives at some point this really like a friendship that is can be both this intensely close, but I think sometimes also like verging on abusive or like a jealous friendship. And and this is an exploration of that dynamic that I think is done fairly well. Me without you on Amazon Prime. And finally, also new to Amazon Prime is Life Animated. This is Roger Ross Williams's documentary about Owen Suskin, a young man who uh, is unable to speak and I believe is uh, has autism. And then he and his family discover a means of communication, Disney animated films. Uh, this is an Oscar nominee in the doc category and I think is pretty clearly the feel-good candidate out of the five, um, which means it might sneak in there. 
against the odds and snatch up a winner that's live animated on Amazon Prime. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Okay. First up, we have one from Madeline who writes, Hi, Allison and Matt. I love your show and I'm always excited for new episodes to come out. I wanted to recommend my favorite movie of all time, Heathers. It's streaming on Netflix, which is where I first found it. And I fell in love. I watched it over and over again for months after. I'm assuming it's a film, it's a film that you both have seen. Matt, you've seen Heathers. Yes, but not in a long time. Yeah, it's been a while for me. It is excellent. Um, since it's an 80s teen classic, so I won't go into much detail because A, I don't want to spoil it for listeners, but let's just say it involves slushies and a song about teenage suicide. Uh, I love its themes about pop culture, teenage trends, coming of age, and Midwest America. It's darkly funny through and through with jokes, both making an audience member laugh and simultaneously be disturbed. What are your thoughts? I love it and think people should totally check it out. I would second that, Madeline. I adore this movie. It is so much darker than a lot of other 80s fare. Uh, It is just so breathtaking. Um, I'm a big fan. Uh, So yes, I would recommend Heather's as well. Thank you for that letter, Madeline. And we also got a note from Eric from Brooklyn, who writes, Little Sister was just added to Netflix and is, to quote IndieWire, the goth nun family dramedy you didn't know you needed. Yes. It's a story of Colleen, a young woman who left home and her identity as a high school goth behind to become a young nun in New York. She hasn't had contact with her family for years, but returns to North Carolina when she hears that her brother has been released from the hospital after being terribly disfigured serving in Iraq. While home, she gets back in touch with her goth identity which has been a source of bonding for her and her brother in an effort to reach out to her now deeply emotionally damaged sibling. Yes, that sounds like a lot of plot and it is, but the movie carries it out with grace, humor, and an earnest love for its characters. It is vaguely reminiscent of the best version of those mid 2000s wacky family dramedies that littered the landscape, but with much more empathy and a lot more guar. Addison Timlin blew me away as Colleen, especially in a semi-dancing that I won't spoil here, and it features fun meta-casting of Ali Sheedy as Colleen's troubled mother. I checked it out after Richard Brody sung its praises in The New Yorker, and I highly recommend it. Thank you for that, Eric. All right, and how about one chip my list? Here's the thing, Matt. Yeah. I am never embarrassed by what I have on oh, my mind. I'm regularly embarrassed. By <laughs> you mine. gave me number three, and number three is The Cold Light of Day. Ooh. A 2012 film star, yeah. Henry Cavill, yep. as a man who takes matters into his own hands. Yeah. After his family is kidnapped by foreign agents. No. Due to this briefcase stolen by Will's father, played by Bruce Willis. Mm. Straight to Video Fair. I added it because it is Mabruk El Mekri's follow up to JCVD. Wow. It is the second film he made and just kind of plunked out there so i'm curious to see how it is it did not get good reviews it did not get any attention but there it is at number three on my my list the cold light of day wow all right let's get to our listeners choice options for our next episode now as we were looking through the potential options we settled on three that uh, I guess Allison noted that there was a potential theme here between our three picks, which was Allison body weirdness, not quite body horror. I'm going to say body, body weirdness. weirdness. That was my favorite Beastie Boys song. Always body weirdness, <laughs> body weirdness. Uh, I think I have the first option here. It is Swiss Army Man, which played at Sundance last year. And you, you described as an infamous Sundance screening. You were present? Uh, I saw it. I can't remember if I saw it at the first screening or not. But certainly, it was one of those screenings that challenged the large audience. A lot uh, of walkouts, you said, supposedly. There were a fair supposedly. amount of walkouts, yes. Anyway, the film is now available on Amazon Prime, or will be very shortly, probably by the time you hear this, I believe. Uh, it stars Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, Dano plays Hank, a man who is attempting suicide after being lost on an island. When he sees a corpse wash ashore, portrayed by Daniel Radcliffe, he develops a type of friendship with the dead body and discovers that he can manipulate the cadaver like a Swiss army knife and ends up slowly reanimating him from the dead. And uh, what else do we need to say about this movie? I think we covered it. There's a lot. The plot description didn't mention farting. I know there's there's farting. farting. There is. Let's just say that the opening scene at a certain point involves Paul Dano riding Daniel Radcliffe's 
farting corpse away to the mainland. The one thing I, I keep saying is I'm so sick of these cliched Hollywood <laughs> movies with their just rote repetition of the same things we've seen over and over again. Well, there you go. Anyway, that's option number one. Swiss Army Man available on Amazon Prime. Option number two is a movie that I haven't seen, but I have been really curious about. And this maybe this is the time that I will sit down and watch it. It is called Le Grand Bouffe. Uh, it is new to Amazon Prime and has already been on Shudder. This is a 1973 French-Italian film. Uh, the director is Marco Ferrari. stars Marcello Mastriani along with uh, a few other actors and is about, and this is, I think, a great premise, four friends who go to a villa for the weekend with a plan to eat themselves to death. <laughs> so it's kind of like, it's got a solo edge to it, but it's all about, about being eating. done with the food. Uh, yeah, and I think I think the fact that this is on Shutter, which is a horror site, uh, speaks a little bit to maybe the place that this occupies. But it is one that I'm deeply curious about. It won the Fripresky, uh, uh Prize at Cannes during its year, but I think is is considered a real oddity as well. So that is your second option, La Grande Bouffe. It is on Amazon Prime and also on Shutter. Okay, and option three is a uh, TV series. It's a Netflix original, and you know how much I love those. It will be available on Netflix starting on February 3rd. It is the Santa Clarita Diet, created by Victor Fresco, who previously did the series Better Off Ted and Andy Richter Controls the Universe, amongst other series. I liked Better Off Ted. Yeah, those are, I think, the ones that he's more sort of uh, was involved as a creator. He's worked on a lot of different TV shows as a writer and producer. This show stars Drew Barrymore and Timothy Oliphant. Great combination. They play a married couple. Uh, who are real estate agents in Santa Clarita, California. The couple's lives take a dark turn after Sheila goes through a transformation, becoming a zombie who feeds on human flesh. I am so tired of these Hollywood cliches. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, the good news is it's only 10 episodes. I'm not sure if that's 10 hours or 10 half hours. I really hope it's 10 half hours, but I don't know. But, um, yeah, I think the combination of the, the creator, the subject, and the stars has us interested in that one. Yes. Just surrender to the binge, Matt Singer. Just surrender to Surrender. It. Give in to the binge. All right. So that's option three, Santa Clarita Diet on Netflix starting on February 3rd. Okay. Well, which of these titles should we review on our next episode? You have the power. You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. Or, much easier, enter in the poll that is on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be in by Monday, February 6th at noon. That is when we will announce the winner on Twitter, at our Twitter account, at filmspottingsvu, as well as on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film or TV series uh, before joining us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out around Tuesday, February 14th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies and TV shows we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal, and you can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We will be back in two weeks with more movie-slash-TV recommendations and the movie-slash-TV review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Miltmore. At... I should know your name by now, probably, but yeah. it's, it's pretty embarrassing. This is just like the downward spiral that we're starting now. Yeah, at Allison Wilmore or at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That is where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice. That's where we share more streaming suggestions, both from us and from SVU listeners. I'm learning things by following it almost every day, like that one recommendation I shared with you. So it's a great follow on Twitter. For FilmSpottingSVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.